Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem. Uh, we are here in our evening Bible study with the book of Leviticus, the best book in the Bible. And we know that the Messiah is present. His spirit is here, whether he's here uh, in my house, your homes, or your car, or wherever you're listening. He is everywhere. He is with these people. We acknowledge that, we, uh, the blessing of prayer, and we pray that uh, his wisdom will be with us. So, Sister Jennifer, pray us in. Father, we just thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you that you have um, prepared Aaron to uh, to bring your word today. We thank you that you would open our ears, our hearts, our eyes, and our minds to know and discern what you what you have for us today, and that we would take it to heart. In the name of Jesus, Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, as is our tradition, uh, we go over the notes from last week, Leviticus one. We'll put the notes in the chat box, and they'll be up online. Would you believe we managed to get through three verses last week? Now, what that shows is that even as Gentiles, there are, there are, there are themes and subjects and elements of this book that we really want to wrestle with. Now, isn't that amazing? Because for many preachers, for many evangelists, for many people who want to study the Bible, that will avoid books like Leviticus, and I think that that's actually to their detriment. So here's a discussion from uh, what was uh, quite a lively and uh, discussion from last week. Leviticus 1, verses 1 to 3. The, the, the book of Leviticus gets its name in English from the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, referring to the priestly tribe of Levi. Much of the material deals with laws and regulations pertaining to the worship within the Mishkan or the tabernacle, and that was later transferred to the temple. I personally think it's the best book in the Bible. Genesis describes God as a creator and how he works with families. Exodus tells us that God is a redeemer and a lawgiver, but only Leviticus tells us that God is holy. For young Jewish boys, this is the first book of the Bible that you actually begin to study. Shimshon, uh, our brother from Nigeria, explained the chiastic structure of the book. A chiasm is a literary device which sees sequences and patterns in thoughts, subjects, and teachings in the overview of the text and often in repeated and reverse form. What does that crazy sentence say? I hear you ask. An example. A simple chiasm from Jesus would be, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the sentence has two subjects, Sabbath man, man Sabbath, and it runs from one point to a middle and then goes out again. The center of the chiasm in Leviticus is chapter 19, and this becomes the spiritual con constitution for the Torah. And when you get to chapter 19, you'll see all these incredible, wonderful laws that reveal the heart of God. Leviticus opens with calling God, with God calling 
Vayikra, Moses. So Leviticus opens with God calling Moses. And then God speaks to Moses, who then speaks to the Israelites. There are three different verbs to speak in these first two verses. Why does God call Moses? Why not simply speak to Moses? And why does God not call Aaron? Leviticus is a calling. And yes, it has rules and obligations, commands and statutes. But first and foremost, the walk of faith and obedience is a calling. The first thing we must answer is to answer the call. God calls Moses from the tent of meeting. Now, the words, or hel moed, the tent of meeting, can mean, among other things, the appointed tent or the tent of witness. Some translations also call it the tent of the presence. It is not called the mishkan, the term usually referring to the tabernacle, which was commanded to be constructed in Exodus. We discussed whether the tent of meeting was indeed the mishkan or some other structure. What other structure could it be? Well, according to Exodus 33, 7 to 11, there apparently was another tent called the tent of meeting that was placed outside the Israelite camp. Whether this tent was in operation during the construction of the Mishkan, which took nine months to build, or served concurrent to the Mishkan is unclear. The presence of the Lord resided in the Mishkan, and Moses would meet the Lord standing before the curtain, or the paroche, of separation. However, in the tent of meeting, it was Moses who resided in the tent with Joshua, and the Lord would stand outside the tent at the entrance, essentially the other way around. Interesting that Aaron was not mentioned as being in the tent of meeting. The point, though, that we made in our discussion is that the term tent of meeting migrated from one structure to the other. That is, the Mishkan later became known as the tent of meeting. We see this migration in terms later as the temple, which was a real structure in history, becomes applied to the physical bodies of the believers. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The first thing spoken to the Israelites in Leviticus relates to the Israelites bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Sacrifice in Hebrew is korban and comes from the verb to draw close to. Part of the calling that we receive from the Lord is to draw close to him. Animal sacrifices are not an easy thing to understand in our modern world. Initially, no reason is in the first few verses is given for why you would bring an animal offering at all. He just says, bring one. Animals die all the time and in huge numbers on a daily basis to satisfy the hunger of many people, vegetarians excluded. So the question pondered is this. If killing a cow for me is good, why is killing a cow for God bad? Worship in the Bible always revolves around food. It was the tradition that the worshipper eat their own sacrifice. Sacrifices were also meant not always to be somber occasions. The purpose of the tabernacle and temple was to be a place where, Deuteronomy 14, 26 says this, you feast in the presence of the Lord and rejoice with your household. 
food really does have a big part to play in the worship of God. And this is reflected in the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, the sacrament of bread and wine in traditional churches to this day. Verse 3 introduces another aspect of the sacrifice, now called a burnt offering or olah. So in verse 2, they're called a korban, but now we're called an olah. That is, the verse starts with the conditional question word, if this implies free will, and the olah is not brought solely by compulsion. Interestingly, fish are never brought as sacrifices, only livestock. The burnt offering is then presented at the entrance to this mysterious tender meeting, which we assume by this stage to have migrated to mean the tabernacle in the center of the Israelite camp, with Aaron now acting as the high priest. Remember that this encounter of the worshiper and God at the tent of meeting is the worshiper's response to the calling by God to be drawn into a closer relationship with God. That's, I think, is a summary of our first, first three verses of the book of Leviticus. It's a calling, and there's a, it's, a, it's not compulsion. It's a free choice, and then you bring to a special place uh, an opportunity to feast and rejoice in the presence of the Lord. And so now let us uh, continue with uh, Leviticus. I'll read verse 3 again, even though we've studied it, because it sets up verse, verse 4. So Leviticus 1, 3. If, is our conditional question, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, and he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he, he may be accepted before the Lord shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the altar. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep of the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar and shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and bring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place 
the ashes. Shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not serve it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, and the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, now we read that last week. And so this hopefully is a, a text that we will wrestle with today. Okay, so anything there that jumps out that uh, from a Peshat, from a literal reading of the text? Yes. What is it, brother? So I heard in the uh, recap from last week, <laughs> I heard two words, sacrifice and offering. I, I would argue that they are two different things. And that because we don't separate the, the differences between a sacrifice and an offering, that causes confusion all the way down the line. What do you think? Sacrifice and offering? Yes, two different things. Okay, so like when it says, because it starts that there's going to be a korban and then immediately changes to the word ola. So you're saying that because there's a difference, that's actually important. I don't. I think it is. If there's a difference between korban and olah, is one a sacrifice? Is one an offering? That's my first question. Okay. Well, the the we translate them as offering. That that might help. Is that in Hebrew? It's not quite the same thing. So you you, you bring yourself a korban, and the first one is called an olah. Does that kind of make sense? I suppose my point is a sacrifice is uh is done for a different meaning than an offering an offering is something that you're doing of free will it has to do with the uh the preposition if um you're making a, a choice to bring this to right. offer it to the lord but a sacrifice is gonna for me is gonna imply that it's that it's something you have to do where okay offering you don't. that's interesting so so the what the sacrifice is something that you have to do which is an obligation and this other right. thing is that isn't if. Well, that's also interesting because while at the start we didn't get a reason why we're, why we're bringing the Ola, later in the text it does say this is for a, a, an atonement, a covering, le capere, but then doesn't explain what it actually is covering. And another thing that we're going to uh, enter into the mix, although this actually affects chapter 2, not, not chapter 1, is not all sacrifices involve blood. Now, I know that we have the, the saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But if you bring a grain offering, there's no blood at all. Uh, so why would you do such a thing? And what would it be exactly. for? And, and once we have the sacrifice <clears throat> requirement completely done away with, which is what Yeshua does for us, does that mean we will stop bringing offerings? And I okay. would argue no. So, so there's, a, there's an interesting sentence that you said, which is, you know, you know, here we have Yeshua, the Messiah, and the sacrifices done away with. But they were done away with before. When was that? When did the sacrifices stop? When the second temple was destroyed. Well, that's the second temple, but also before that. First temple. Correct. So we okay. had sacrifices. That is true, which we are talking about now. These are, these are, these are, this is the word of the Lord. So we wrestle with them. We understand it's a calling. There's a lot there. But we also know that for a brief piece of history, they stopped for a bit. And then they started again. But they didn't start for absolutely everybody. They started for people that were only close to the temple. Everybody else that remained in glute, they did it. And so 
what exactly did they mean? What were they learning from them? What was that actually pointing to? And those are the things we will wrestle with. So, uh, Roddy, all the questions that you ask, we will probably wrestle with as we go through the entire text. Right now, haven't quite got an answer. Um, I got a hand up from Vida, and then I'm going to go bring in the rabbi to see what he's got to say. Vida, you're up. Paul David. It's, it's me, Aaron. Just wondering and noticing that it seems that, like the goats, for example, will be killed on on one part of the altar, say the north part, and the bird, for example, the turtle dove will be killed or cast into the ashes on the east side. What, what is the significance of this? That that uh, that that each part of the altar, the north, south, east, and west, what, what relevance does that play in that the animals are killed or on, on the north side, the bird is, is cast into the ashes on the east side? What, what does this mean? Wow, those are really good questions. Okay, so we, we understand from um, the, that nothing is superfluous in the text. If this is the Holy Bible, there's got to be a reason why these little details are here. And um, so we read that the, the bigger animals, the ones with the large amount of blood and the ones like the bulls and the, and the goats and the, and the lambs, the sheep, the livestock, they have to be killed at the north side of the altar, nowhere else. Yet the birds, being a little smaller, uh, you uh, destroy them um, by, by sort of literally tearing them apart. and then. Um, it's the ashes that, that go on the east side, which is apparently a place where all the ashes are taken. And, uh, and there's no exact, the text doesn't give you any reasons why this is. All you know is that if the Lord told you to do it, what would be your response? You do it. And then you try and figure out a meaning. You know, these, these, I can just imagine the priests doing all this thing. And then after they've done their job and they're cleaning up after the day, they might go to their houses, and as they go, they go, Shlomo, why do we do it on the north side? I mean, seriously, there's a lot of room on the, on the west. I mean, there's like nobody there. Uh, but what, what's the problem? Or um, you know, what, obviously we can't do it on the south. There's, you know, a giant tree in the way or something. We don't, we don't really know. But we do know that because the shedding of blood was always occurring for the larger animals on the north, the north became a place or became synonymous with redemption. And so uh, uh, then you, you end up with the, uh, in the prophets that redemption was going to come from the north. The Psalms say it's not from the east, it's not from the west, it's not from the south where you get your redemption. As you all probably know, that the tent opened to the east. Am I right? So the wash basins were on the west and the essence ascent to the altar was on the south, translating from Hebrew, sorry, and the north side was basically the logical part of it. So basically, all these three sides were pretty busy with different things. And of course, in the uh, future uh, prophecies, we will see that the Messiah will come from the north, so it, there might be a connection between the two. Yes, there is a connection, absolutely, Mordecai. The Messiah comes from the north. How do we know this? From, from Isaiah. It says, you, the, the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali, which are the tribes in the north, you guys see a great light. Not, not, not Judah down in the south or Shimeon or, uh, or, or, or the guys um, on the, 
on the east, sitting over there in Gad, uh, Menashe or uh, Reuven, although those tribes have disappeared. It was, it was always going to be the north. Um, it is interesting. There's also this connection with the ashes to the east. Yeah. What was I read this from Rambam, so from his book called Beit Haberha. So it's basically one of his books he wrote about the temple. Okay. All right, let's have a, let's have a little wrestle with the text, see what we, um, what we can learn. Now, remember, Leviticus, the heart of God, and we hear the footsteps of the Messiah all the way through this. So we have an offering. This offering is called an Olah. It's a burnt offering, uh, and it is a free will. It's got the word if in it. So there's no compulsion, although there is a reason why you're still doing this. You know, you're not sort of waking up one day and go, oh, my gosh, I've got a spare cow. I think I'll give it to God. There is a reason, and, there's, and, it, and you're answering a call. So verse 4 is where we're up to. So he, this is the worshiper, he lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Okay, it's an animal, livestock, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is the verb, to make atonement. Why do you think he has to do this ritual? Why touch it? Who's the he there? Is it the priest or the person giving the offering that lays his hand? The person, the person who is giving the offer should put on his hands. But here it says yado, basically like in a singular form, but it means both hands. It's not one hand, so both hands. The reason why is because he puts his hands on the korban and confesses his sins. So in Hebrew it says yado, basically his hand, but his hands. That's what it meant. To Transferring to the animal. Yeah. Well, this is the interesting thing. He puts his both hands on. Okay, this is our little worshiper. Very in singular form. It's just him and God. Okay, there's a priest involved, okay, um, as well. But And, and maybe a Levite or two sort of hiding, holding the animal. But anyway, he's, it's, a, it's an act of worship. He confesses his sins, right, which... Which the text doesn't say that, but, but we're trying to figure out why are we doing this? It's also, this is voluntary. He's voluntarily confessing his sins, right? The word if, okay? And so there's a voluntary thing. And um, I, know, I know that we often say, and he puts his sins on the animal. He's confessing his sins, okay? And then to make atonement, this action makes atonement for him. Remember. The action makes atonement, which makes a big difference when you don't have a temple or a sacrifice. Okay. Now, what is it that he's making atonement for? Because the text doesn't say. Mordecai, have you got anything on that one? Is uh, for his sins, basically. Okay. Unattentional sins that the Torah does not forbid the sin that he commit, but he feels bad, so he goes to the priest and still confesses to the God. So. Okay. Can you unpack that one? So this is an unintentional sin. Yes. Right. That's why it's called Olah. As we read uh, from Rabbi Hirsch, the reason for this kurban is to raise the owner of that kurban from the status of sinner to uh, basically clean guy. But okay. Yeah. I actually forgot to put that in the last week's mint. Uh, That's why it's called Olah, the elevation right. offering. To elevate him from the status of, of a sinner to basically to bring him closer to, the, to God. Yeah. 
it's not a huge sin, we, have, we can say, you know, it's not anything that against Torah or God, but unintentional sin, you name it, you know, it doesn't specify here in the book or in oral Torah. It could be anything. Yeah. Yep. Does everyone understand what uh, uh, Mordecai has just said? The text doesn't say what exactly we're covering. Okay? And again, lechaper, which we call atonement, um, there's a big difference between the words expitiation and propitiation. You understand the difference between the two? Uh, maybe? I do. <laughs> okay. Could you explain so it a bit? Out, Aaron. Go for it, Shimshon. No, help us out with the difference. Oh, okay. Uh, Mordecai, you want to start? Oh, no, wait, wait a second. Arya's joined in. Is it where is it? Arya, are you here? Did I see you here? Yes. Aha, fantastic. Good to see you, brother. So, did you hear the question or the? I heard the question about expiation and uh, propitiation. Yes, because we're trying to understand the Hebrew verb lechaper uh, to cover. And, and could you unpack it for us a little bit, Arie? Because you've thought a lot about this. We've had interesting Bible studies at his house, uh, wrestling with this with this uh, discussion. Because the actual uh, mercy seat is called the the kapara, which um, kaporet, kaporet, the kaporet, which is um, from the same root. So, Arie, take it away, mate. Give us an explanation of these things. Well, it's uh, rather complex across. Uh, the Hebrew and the New Testament Bibles. Uh, the root probably starts with covering. And uh, just as a side note for us English speakers, our English translation tradition here for the top of the Ark of the Covenant is really not very accurate. That We have this very poetic uh, phrase, mercy seat, which is really a fabrication of uh, William Tyndall based on, uh, of all things, well, his master's or his teacher's translation, Martin Luther's translation into German, which I think was originally Gedadenstuhl, meaning the source of mercy. And so that the mercy seat as uh, William Tyndall envisioned it and translated was not what we see today as some sort of place where Mercy has made itself comfortable and in an easy chair. It means rather the source of mercy or the place from which mercy emanates. That's just a bit of commentary on kaporit. Lechaper in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is a very interesting word, but it actually is so widely used in so many different contexts and sacrifices that it's actually a little bit difficult to say what it has in mind. Okay. Um, I would just add here, and maybe even referencing our Galatian study, and certainly Hebrews, and I think the Gospels and Romans, that uh, the, the New Testament doesn't really teach about atonement. It teaches about other things. So all this really tells, in my mind, this word lechaper in the Old Testament, it tells us that God really does not like sin, and something has to be done about it. That That's really the kind of the basic message how how it worked we don't get any uh, real detail on it and uh, if we rely on our new testament truths in jesus we can actually say that what god really requires here is repentance Amen. The, sinner, the sinner has to change his mind otherwise all the sacrifices mean nothing yeah and if he changes his mind god's flexible on the sacrifices as well 
I would I would say that the lechaper also has has no implication of either expiation or propitiation, and none of the New Testament language does either. That's also traditions imported from some of our Protestant uh, Luther. Lutheran traditions into our English translations that are gradually disappearing from our modern English translations if you if you note them and, and look into them. Yeah. God, God does not require sacrifice to turn away his anger. He does require yes. repentance. He requires repentance. That's right. And so the first thing that does is our little man confesses with his hands on the on the, on the yeah. awesome. And, yeah. This was before the confession rooms, right? So now we have the confession rooms. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, those little boxes. Uh, somebody, some carpenter's making a lot of money in cathedrals, don't you think? Yeah. We've got another hand up, David or Vito. The statement that we just made that yes, God requires repentance, not sacrifice, and I, I absolutely get what she's saying and I understand it. But we have to also be careful that we don't get to a point where we can say we didn't need Lord Jesus, that sacrifice. Because Absolutely not. There is sacrifice. The, the, the sacrifice of Christ was definitely a sacrifice, absolutely, it was, but it was a self-sacrifice. God was not pouring out his wrath on his son, in my opinion, it's, which is nowhere stated. What the New Testament states is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not writing down its sins. That's yeah. the essence of Calvary. Yeah. God voluntarily accepts the position of victim, the universal victim of sin, rather than giving retribution against it, which is the natural human reaction. So here we have the, uh, the ola, this, this uh, free will uh, response to a call, uh, which the worshiper puts his hands on, confesses, and it covers the sin okay uh, as part of your act of worship um, and then in verse five then he kills the bull okay so it's a large animal it's expensive before the lord and aaron's sons we get the uh they finally get a mention and we have a, a, a only a particular group of people that to do this the priests they bring the blood and they throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent uh, we need to unpack this a bit. Who yes. is he? So this latter part can be performed by anybody. Then they give the blood in a vessel to the Kohanim. Okay. Then the Kohanim brings that blood in the vessel to the altar, and they perform the uh, Korbanat ritual. So here he means can be anybody, a Levim or the guy who brought the doll. So bull, so it could be anybody. He, the Kohen does not salah the, the, the korban, basically. He just takes care of the blood. Okay. The, what, the final guy at the altar, you mean? Is that what, that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. With yes, what sorry. Vita asked, Arye's response, this goes as a verse. It's not talked about very much. It's Isaiah 43, and it's verses 10 and 11. Verse 11, when God is speaking to Isaiah, God says, only I can be your salvation. And so if that's true, then we have to have what the result that uh, the conclusion that REA came through with. This will go to the divinity argument for when uh, new Jewish believers become believers. Well, is Yeshua truly divine? 
especially when God says only I can be your salvation. Okay. Yep. Very good. 43. 40, I, I see it. 43, 10, and 11. Yeah. Yeah. So you're putting that in, in terms of uh, the priest and the blood or or in what way, uh, Roddy? When uh, REA was talking about um, God had to be in Yeshua, Yeshua and God, and he's uh, the ultimate yes. sacrifice himself. And then we can also carry it to uh, lots of other directions. This to all corresponds and goes back to the Korban and the shedding of blood, which was Vita's point that we yeah. had to be careful. Yeah. Yes. Now, not let's remember, not all sacrifices actually involve blood. Mm. Okay. That's actually true. And um, But what is involved in every sacrifice is repentance and an act of worship. With regard to the sacrifice of Christ, I have found it very helpful to form my thinking around the New Testament images of, of cross and blood in this way, that to me, the cross of Christ represents the sufferings of Christ and the blood of Christ represents the death of Christ. I think these, these imageries are pretty biblical and easily discerned, and they therefore become universal for all of us to, uh, to embrace and enter into. We, we should not think in terms of the literal, physical blood of Christ. Other, if we do, then we all wind up going on pilgrimage looking for pieces of the original cross and, uh, and the superstitions that surrounded these sorts of things. Lucky for us in Jerusalem, we don't have to because there's lots of it right here. <laughs> but yes, you're right. What's also remember from last week's discussion is that this act of worship is an act of worship. It actually also involves joy. And sometimes we often get, get a little bit too preconceived with um, uh, being very somber and morbid, morbid in our worship. We, we believe in a resurrected Lord. We believe in a life everlasting. These should be things that are joyful and happy. And, uh, and, and, you can eat, and in this episode, okay, obviously the animal's not feeling too very good when he's, when he's dying, but the worshiper has had the opportunity to repent. He's had the opportunity to worship and sing. And very soon he's going to have the opportunity to eat and rejoice. Remember Deuteronomy 14. Rejoice in the presence of the Lord as, as part of your, of your worship. And this is actually something that we're supposed to embrace. If you go into, uh, what's it say? What does David say? Return to me the joy of my salvation. Salvation, our salvific life, a resurrected life, is meant to be happy. And, uh, and, and so for anybody who's listening, if, if you're not that way, if unfortunately life has got you down and uh, there's some issues that are constantly getting you depressed, then go talk to someone, talk to us, write us an email, because we would hope that, uh, that you would find once again the joy of, uh, of the Messiah. That our salvation is free. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't free. It was very expensive for the Lord, but it is, it is, uh, it is a free gift, and you can choose it. Okay. All right. So we have. Oh, any other questions before I continue on in verse six? Okay, Yvonne. Um, not not a question, an observation. It's interesting because um, you know Isaiah, Isaiah, Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about it in Isaiah chapter one. Uh, he, 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 he reprimands Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, verse 10, he, they're, um, 
you know, the multitude of uh, chapter one, he's uh, talking about the rulers of, of Sodom and how they're multiple, they're, they have a, multi, a multitude of sacrifices, burnt offerings, fat of rams, blah, blah, blah. And how he talks about he doesn't delight in their sacrifices. Um, and he continues, oh, you know, you do your new, new moons and Sabbath and all the complications. But he says, I cannot endure iniquity. And the point being, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. I will, your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So here they're doing all of these sacrifices and they're bringing these sacrifices to the temple. There's disparity and uh, oppression and they're still bringing their sacrifices. So um, the whole point for me uh, is, is that you can do the sacrifices, but the heart can be just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, in, in the sense that, but the korbanot, the korbanots are, are not, they're not a replacement for morality uh, or for correct ethical correction. It's just like you have that, you have the desire to be with God. So it's like drawing closer to him. Yes, and, let's remember and, and, that in this text, with all of these sacrifices, as um, Shimshon reminded us, the chiastic, chiastic structure is eventually going to bring us to Leviticus 19. Mm -hmm. All of these, the, the heart where of, of what God said, love your neighbor, take care exactly. of Exactly. Mm -hmm. Even take care of animals. Well, we're just killing mm -hmm. a bunch of animals. Yeah, but you're kind of eating them. You know, you know, you're going to kill fish and you're going to eat them. You're going to kill birds and you're going to eat them. You're going to kill mm -hmm. cows. Animals die for food. They really do. Uh, mm -hmm. Unless you're all going to become vegetarians, which God did not say to Noah that that was a requirement anymore. You're right. The heart was always was always meant to be about uh, the heart. Okay, we're back. Uh, no, another hand. David. Uh, I would like to say something about what Yvonne said, if it's okay. Yeah, Moji. Uh, Ivan, you are totally right, but we are looking from 2021's uh, perspective. At that time, it wasn't enough. You know what you say; it wasn't enough. So they had to bring the sacrifices because that mm -hmm. was the only way at that time. You know. Mm -hmm. So just, I just wanted to say that. Oh yes. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. At that time, no, at that time, Correct. yes, obviously, yes. But what I guess the point is that just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were still going to the sacrifices and doing, you know, burning the temples. They still weren't taking care of the orphans. They weren't still doing right. what was ethically and moral. It was like a, not an ethical moral. So, so he's, I, I he says, I, I don't want that. Uh, he says, you know what? Wash yourselves, remove the evil, cease to do evil, and then go back and do the correction and work on the oppression and bringing the widows and the fatherless. And yes. so it's just uh, he he reprimands Sodom and Gomorrah at the time. Yes, it's always the tension between um, where, where's our heart at? Killing a cow for me for a steak dinner, good, you know. Somehow killing a cow for God, if my heart still wants to worship, how can that possibly be bad? And it can't possibly be just in and of itself. Can't possibly be, but the heart has to be correct. If I'm worshiping the Lord and yet hurting my neighbor, then I really honestly haven't worshiped the Lord. And anything that I bring, whether it be a cow, a dove, grain, or my heart, is unacceptable. But anyway, uh, and so yes, we must always keep in mind when God said bring a sacrifice, that was a real thing, that was a real activity. But God always has always wanted the heart of the worship. Mm -hmm. And he and he delighted to tell people, hey, when in my presence, eat, 
and rejoice because uh, I'm, I'm with my people. Thinking, can you imagine? Of course, it's like a, I mean, this is such a, not a housewarming gift. You're going up to the Lord. You want that. You're, you know, the Ola, you're wanting to. And um, can you imagine just seeing this animal basically reduced to nothing in your presence? And, and it's, yeah. it's amazing just putting yourself into that context and taking this animal, which has done nothing and um, literally watching this thing just burn up. And uh, yeah. I mean, It seems like a lot for us because we don't see animals die. But if you live on a farm and you see them die all the time, it's really not that spectacular. We do see animals die every year. The Muslims slaughter tens of thousands of sheep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we yeah we have our we buy our meat from. It's called an asogi. Sandra would know. And you have the pieces of meat hanging in. In so it's not. I mean, but it's just the whole concept of this huge. You know, this animal. Uh, look, when, when we buy go buy milk, it comes in a plastic carton. You know, none of us have ever walked out into a field and physically actually. You know grabbed a cow and started squeezing milk out because if that was happening we'd probably drink black tea for the rest of our natural life <laughs> okay but um it's just a thing but because we're so removed but these people were close these people were, were right in there and it was it was the, the smells were there the taste was there the worship was there let's remember people are singing in the background this isn't just some you know boring thing some guys banging a drum you know they're there was a majesty involved. There was, there was incense. There was worship. There was singing. There were prayers. Now, you would hope that this would be directing the worshiper's heart towards the Lord. Maybe someone was giving a sermon. However, if it does become rote, just like anything, even in the, in the, in the Christian world, and people just showed up, they gave their animal to a priest, they took it on a conveyor belt, you can absolutely hear the prophet saying, this is not what I desire. I don't desire this. I desire my worshiper. Where's my? Where's the heart of my worshiper? Says the Lord. He he never even showed up to the city. It's, he's still sitting back in the Galilee, um, and and it was never never the intention. the The whole point of a, of a sacrifice was to get close. God has always wanted to get close. And remember, what is the name of the book? He called. It's a calling. Let's respond to that call. Vida, you're next. Yes, uh, Aaron, it's me. Uh, in conjunction oh. with all of this, uh, all the, the amount of sacrifice that was going on, all the animals that were being sacrificed, etc. maybe the lesson here per person, say a person brings in 100 cows a week, whatever it is, 100 goats or whatever, maybe the lesson here is actually sacrifice is costly. Could be. It, it is. It would be incredibly costly. For most of the people on the planet they couldn't, uh, in Israel, they couldn't afford this. This is unaffordable. But, but also from the perspective of, is that it's going to cost uh, the Lord God his son. I mean, that's, that's the way we traditionally read it because of, we think of the, of the word cost, and that's great. But we don't have to do it that way But because it's, it's true. The, the, the cost of, the Messiah, of God himself is he sends himself. That's how much he loves the world. We, we run in, in cost because we think in terms of, of cost. But um, let's also remember... Large sections of this, with especially to do with animals, are out of the price range of the majority of people. Okay? Uh, this is not something your average Israelite can actually afford. Um, and uh, so what does that mean for somebody who's actually committed a sin? Huh? Oh, my gosh, you can't get, get forgiven? Remember, 
unintentional, most sacrifices are unintentional. The real thing you need was always repentance, always, always repentance. Um, but the pattern that's being set up is, in, is an incredible picture of the story that's to come. Okay. And another thing I, for, the, for the people, it was a positive thing, not like other, other people groups in the sense where you're, you're throwing the sacrifice in the jaws of this, you know, bloodthirsty deity to keep them happy. It, it's, it's, it's that which, you know, other cultures, you see that with other cultures. That's true. There were other cultures. And I think last week, Mordecai, you might have read, um, a re- was it one of the, was it Rambam or one of the others? We did the sacrifices to make sure they weren't sacrificing to, to other gods. They're actually sacrificing to the real God, you know? Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and of course, you know, the Rambam's 1,000 years, 1,200 years after Yeshua. So they've been wrestling with, why did we have this in the first place? And, you know, everyone's trying to read. <laughs> Re- look at, at 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 the at the reason, and I'm trying to make sure, always sure that let's keep to the intention, and uh, like we answer the call, and here we got the worshiper. Why was he there in the first place? What was he doing bringing this offering? It was a it's a it's an if, it's a free will offering, not a compulsion to do. He wants to do this. He feels like he has to. There's an obligation for him, but it's also a part of worship. And he's heavily involved in this. He puts his hands on it. He's not removed from the process. And at the same time, some of the some of the offerings he gets to eat. Burnt offerings, not so much. Burnt offerings, the whole thing gets consumed uh, to the Lord. Um, anyway, there's a bit of blood, and there's a there's another piece of furniture. There's this piece of furniture called an altar. Where well, everybody's got altars. Okay, pagans have altars. Noah built an altar. Abraham built an altar. Everybody's building altars. Altars aren't an inherently evil thing, and you still find them in the, in the church today. In fact, the only reason why you have them in the church today is because they appear here in the text. They are not something that we borrow from the pagan world, okay? And they're incredibly important. If they're important enough to put the blood on, they're important enough for priests to stand around and tend. In fact, in some of uh, the Anglo-Catholic uh, traditions, um, the the altar is a very special piece of furniture uh, in the church. The, the 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 way you describe a bishop's role is to go and guard the altar of the Lord. And uh, and so in the ancient world, if the church was ever going to be attacked or burnt, where did you find the priest? Where was his last act of defense to stand and try and guard the altar? Everything else can burn down. You can smash the windows. You can smash the pulpit. But he wanted to try and um, uh, guard this thing called the altar because it was a special piece of furniture. Janet, just an aside here: it is the bima is the bima in 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 the Jewish uh, synagogues now a replacement for the altar, in the sense also that it's a it's an ole. You're going up. Is it? Is that? Does it still okay, represent the heart? Yeah, Rabbi, Does what it do represent sacrifice? The you know it's an, because it you know you're called up and then is up is that any related to Ola? Yes, we have already mentioned that that uh, Rabbi Hirsch has an explanation on this. He says it's called an elevation offering because it basically raises the uh, the korban bringer from a status of sinner to closer to God. 
So that's why it's called Ola. And we give an example of uh, being the Ole to Israel. It's still called the same thing. Why? Because when you make Aliyah, you're basically erasing your status from um, a status from a different country to closer to God. Is the uh, the thing called the Bima? Where is that, that? That's where you stand and make the Aliyah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Bima. Is that considered like an altar on Mizpah or not really? Well, they have very ancient bimas. Actually, when the temple was, you know, standing, they always had the the bima. So I don't think it was a. It was just a tea, like a table to read the Torah. You know, they had to have a place to put the Torah scroll on. Mm-hmm. So nothing special, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then in the next couple of verses, you get this interesting uh, description of. Um, like, like a ceremony, a, a service, how you do stuff. Okay? And just like in our worship services today, there are things that we do. There are patterns, there are forms, there are ways that we stand, things that we read. Wait, uh, uh, we say a psalm before we say a reading or a psalm after reading, all kinds of different things. Here we have in verse uh, 6, you flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Sons of Aaron, the priest, so a particular group of people, even though the community has been called the priesthood of all believers, you still have a succinct group of people, okay? and um, and uh, they put the fire on the altar and they arrange the wood on the fire. So they've got certain things that they do. And uh, the Aaron sons, the, the priests, they arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the, the wood. And, and entrails, and uh, but, but parts of it get washed. And I, for one, do not know why you wash certain bits and not the other bit, because um, uh, this seems to be the sort of more dirtier, grittier, smellier parts of the animal. And, um, and, then, and then you burn it all. And it is a food offering, and it's pleasing to the Lord, this reach, this smell. Uh, which is an interesting thing to say, that uh, within all of this worship, there's something that delights the Lord. And one of the senses that is part of worship is the sense of smell, which is a, which in the Jewish tradition is still kept in only one, one way, and that's called the Havdalah, uh, which at the end of Shabbat, or Mose Shabbat, uh, you, you smell something, don't you, Mordecai? Yes, you smell some spices or some uh, nice smells, lemon or a cologne like this. <laughs> yeah. 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 It just like gives you a fresh beginning of the new week. Um, I would like to um, say something about verse 6. Here he, it says, he shall skin, right? In my translation, he, it says, he shall skin the elevation offering and cut into two, its pieces. Who is he? Torah, again, does not specify. But if you wonder what happened to that skin afterwards, Rashi says it was divided among the Kohanim who were on duty that day. We don't know who removed the skin, but the skin is not holy and wasn't used for any reason. And they divided among them. They probably tell it later on. I know many of you were wondering about the skin, so I just wanted to say something about it. <laughs> yes, this is one way of how the priests get paid. Okay, um, they do. No, they 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 got rewarded uh, 
as part of this, as a reward for their service. The, the question I have is, it keeps saying, and Aaron's sons should do this. And we know that the Levites have a certain part, and then the Kohenin have the more specific part to do with the, the actual dealing with the sacrifice on the altar and everything. But I'm just slightly outside of context. They want him to bring a new temple in Israel. There's a yeah. part of Judaism that wants that. How can they do that? If they, can they prove who's Aaron's sons today? Can you repeat the question about Aaron's sons? Can you prove who are the sons of Aaron to this day? I am. I'm a Kohen, and I can prove that. How, how can I prove that? Because the families of Kohens and Levim are very well kept. So if your father is a Kohen and who did not marry to a widow or someone who is not virgin and someone who is not convert and someone who is a Jew, then the son will be a Kohen. I'm a Kohen because my father is a Kohen and my mom was a virgin and wasn't convert and they lawfully married under chuppah. Now it made me a Kohen. If I go and marry with a girl, a convert, or someone who is not Jewish or someone who is not virgin, then my son will not be a Kohen. And it's very well kept in the archive. So that's how we know. We know only two, two parts of the the tribes, actually. Levim and the Kohanim. The others don't know where they come from. That's why we call them uh, Judas, Benjamin, but they basically don't know where they come from, but the Kohans and the Levis do know where they come from, but every single last name does not make you a Kohen or Levi, you, so you have to be careful. There are many Kohans with last name Kohen or not Kohen. And I, my last name is not Kohen, but I'm a Kohen. So you have a piece of paper, actually, that proves that you are a Kohen. So everybody could say, oh, I'm a Kohen. But they will ask you, like, when you try to get married, they will ask, okay, well, bring me a proof of Judaism or proof of uh, being a Kohen. So there is a proof for that from a base thing, a religious Wait, court. Mari, I thought, okay, I thought that you, of course, people, uh, you know, that have the names. You don't have the names, so... How do you, I mean, explain again, you would be from like, who would you be? And how did you know that? I mean, the, the paper, and the, but what, what, like, explain a little bit more and slowly just to capture that. Oh, well, I know it because uh, my father is a Kohen. So it's like a family thing. Now, how do you know that your father is an American? So you know it. My father is a Kohen because his marriage certificate says that he's a Kohen. And my grandfather was a Kohen. It is written on his gravestone. It goes like this. So it's not kept by us, kept by us. It's kept by the Jewish community because it's super important for them because we are longing to see this temple rebuilt in these days. So they have to keep it clear who is a Kohen or not. You know, you can claim to be a Kohen, but it won't give you any benefit because at the end, you will not be able to prove it. But we have some sort of like a certification that shows that I'm a Kohen. As I explained before, if I go and get married with someone who's not Jewish or who is just a convert, a nice, you know, Gerstedek, the Bet-Din or the rabbi who performs the wedding will know it, and therefore he won't write Kohen in my marriage certificate. So therefore, I will be the deadline of this family. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we have many Kohens that just have disappeared from the history because of the, you know, marriages of love. 
Moti is is there any tradition of belonging to the line of Sadok or Evyatar as Kohanim? I don't know that. Because biblically, of course, only only the Sadokites are allowed to be uh, Kohen Gadol anymore. <laughs> no, this it's is a big, this, it's, yeah. it's a big discussion. There are Sephardic Kohens and Ashkenazim Kohens, and Ashkenazim says there will be no Sephardic Kohen Gadol. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the tensions within the house of Judah. <laughs> oh, okay, guys, what about this interesting discussion on the priesthood of all believers? Because we know that the people of Israel were saved and redeemed, brought to Mount Sinai, and God says, you are a nation of priests, a nation, okay? Not just one or two tribes, a nation. Now we have a text where we get into intricate detail who's allowed to do what and um, and and and. They're the Bnei Haran, the sons of Aaron. And later on, as Arie says, okay, only the, the Cohen's that can only come from a particular, even little special group. And uh, what does it mean, do you think, to have the priesthood of all believers? But this other bit, because remember Korah, he was a Levite and he said, I want to do this too. But he wasn't allowed. And God swallowed him up. All right, Peter's going to have a go. I think I, I think when I asked the Lord, and I think I've got an answer. I'm not saying it's from the law, but this is my understanding. We're under a different priesthood now, under the okay. priesthood of Christ. Yep. And because of that, we could we have all been made priests under the priesthood of Christ. Okay. So we are under the priesthood of the of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay. Hallelujah. Yes. Now that's us. Okay. Put that aside. Go back into the text. Because God's been talking to the people of Israel and he says, you're a kingdom of priests. And yet then still turned around and said, no, these guys got something special to do. So there, there is a tension between everyone being a priest and still having a certain someone do a certain thing. A, a royal and, priesthood, but only the Levites and be the priesthood. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and when there was a rebellion, when someone like Korach did get up and say, well, I think I should be able to offer worship too. Yet God turned around and said, well, let's swallow that guy up. And, uh, and so, so there is that interesting tension between this thing called Cruise of the Believers and, um, and. But then, Aaron, is, sorry, Aaron, how, how do you, we, okay, you said leaving aside what we are called to be now and what Revelation, etc. says. Still in, 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 in the Tanakh, in, it is written, the order of Melchizedek, right? Yes, it is. And, and Abraham met this guy, right? Yes. So surely that was in play as well. Well, it's mentioned in the Psalms, but I don't know of any priests in the temple calling themselves the, the no. order of Melchizedek. But, but, but Not what, even what, those guys sitting down in Qumran, because those are the guys I would naturally have thought, oh, we would, we would definitely make ourselves after the priests of Melchizedek. But they really took that as the messianic phrase. Yes. So in Qumran, they, they really made Melchizedek um, a type of Messiah. What, what I was thinking of is, is, is the play of tension. What, what the Lord God seems to be doing in, in, from my perspective is this, is he set, he set that in play, but he brought out the Levitical priesthood, the, the, the idea of the law, to, to show that there is sin, everything is wrong, but they had to do some come right, right? in order for the, the priesthood or, or the order of Melchizedek to come into play, we had to know there was sin, so we had to have the law, etc., etc. It was all playing hand in hand, all the way through. Sure, to Melchizedek shows up even before the law, yes. so he's he's like even so way before that. 
what's interesting for me, David, is, um, and, and it was in actually the, uh, the readings for this Sunday, yes. is that um, you had the Pharisees. So, so for, for guys oh, who are following the um, lectionary, it's in Mark 7. The Pharisees come down from Jerusalem and they start having a discussion with the disciples, an argument actually, with the disciples of Jesus over hand washing. Yes. You go, oh, for crying out loud, seriously, that's your big deal? That's all you've got? You know, you're not going to argue theology, you're going to argue this tradition. And, um, you know, and, and Jesus gets pretty angry about it. Where did these Pharisees get this idea from, you know, that you had to wash your hands? They got it from the concept of priesthood of all believers. Yes. So the Pharisees turned around and they said, we're all priests. They looked at the text and they said, whatever the priests are doing in the text, we will superimpose that on everyone. So if these priests have to wash their hands and their feet in a certain way, we will make every Tom, Dick and Harry or Moses, Solomon and David do this. They got a point. And Jesus turns around and says, Oh my gosh, if you guys so missed the plot, you know, um, but you can see that you know, some people get this idea of the priesthood of all believers and they take it in the wrong direction. What we've got to try and do is try and take it in the right direction. Is, um, and and a hopefully, very interesting that's interesting point. Very powerful. Now, here, I'd like to say something about what your wife says. Why does the Torah need to specify the sons of Aaron here? Rashi has an interesting explanation on this. He says a priest's service is not valid unless he is acting as a Kohen, such a, uh, for instance, that he is dressed in his priestly vestments. You know, if he is not in his holy vestments and he is not the acting Kohen of that day at the temple, then that korbanat is not valid, so unvalid. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's why it's had to specify here. Well, oh, right. okay. You can so be a Kohen if you, are, if you are not assigned on that day and if you are just on your T-shirt and short, just like performing some sacrifices, it's not really. So then would, would Zechariah, uh, John, John Baptist's father, be Kohen? Yes, he was a Kohen, of course. So John the Baptist, Yohanan, yes. right? He was Yohanan, probably Yohanan yeah. HaKohen, John the priest, but somehow it's his name change as the John the Baptist because I, I don't think we have such a term or title in Judaism. No. <laughs> it's an English term, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, his real name was John the Anglican, but of course that was mistranslated by those, uh, you know, those non-conformists. <laughs> All right. So we've got this, we've got this little, little um, ritual going on and there's lots of detail about how you do it, wood and blah, blah, blah. And then it ends with this thing called a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so can God smell? I love and, that question. Yeah. So, so what does it mean? What is actually pleasing to the Lord? What actually is part of all of this ritual and detail and stuff? What is it that at the end of the sentence says, well, this actually was pleasing? Okay, uh, Moti, give us a, a first shot at it. Of course, God does not smell, but our sages says that God was happy because he says, I have spoken and my will has been done. So I saw the smoke, so this guy obeyed my word and my will has been done. So I'm satisfied. 
Okay. So obedience. Yeah. Okay, one thing is obedience makes God happy. What else? Yeah. yeah. That's good. What else? That doesn't mean he doesn't smell. It's a sweet savor in his nostril. Okay. All right. So God. Okay. So so Jennifer's coming back with. Well, wait a second. God can smell. Yes. <laughs> so I agree. You're, you're also I don't know. It's not written, so I just don't didn't want to make some personal ideas about God. <laughs> no, but it, 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 okay. What do you think, guys? Keep keep working through. Keep working through this. But God God is in us, so okay. he, we can smell. So he can smell. Okay, all right. So therefore, you know, he's he's in our hearts. So interesting thought, Kate. There you go. Which means also God can taste and see and experience and uh, very mm. and enjoy every little piece of our life. Well, these are our gifts He gives us. How how would He know what to give us that would please us if He doesn't know Himself? The wonderful smell of flowers or beautiful aroma of meat cooking and Mm -hmm. he says in numbers 28 the lord spoke to moses saying command the people of israel and say to them my offering my food for your food offering so it's ultimately his and so he delight and then it says you know he delights it's a pleasing aroma and of course you should be careful to give it at the appointed time so it's it's giving, it's being thankful to giving him back what ultimately is his. And that, in a sense, is also a sweet aroma to the Lord. Okay. We also know God walks in the garden. Yes. God speaks. Yes. God hears us. So why would he not smell, taste, touch? Absolutely. That's what I think. Also, yep. the psalm said that, uh, I think uh, King David, when, in one of his psalms, he says the Lord uh, blows smoke out of his nostrils. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, you go, oh, my gosh. That your imagery is like, really, where, where does God's nose reside in this universe? Yeah. <laughs> it's anthropomorphic. Yes, and, yeah, some of these things. Are right. Really we often use a lot of those phrases to try and describe mm-hmm. this Lord doing things. And yet, so therefore, there is, it's interesting to, for us to describe it. God does have a, 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 a sense of smell in, in, the, in the way that in the tabernacle, there was a particular incense that could only be used for him. And uh, the ingredients are all listed in the book of Exodus. And uh, which also reminds us that incense is not a Catholic invention. Okay? Um, it's way before the invention uh, of the Catholic Church. Uh, incense was a, was a tradition in, in multiple worship forms and including the Israelite religion. And so incense was a sense of smell is a definite, definite part of your worship. God's sense of smell seems, you know, maybe it's natural, but also, I mean, he can discern or smell sin. So, you know, Ah, when. Okay. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I've got a a study Bible and it's saying um, this aroma speaks of the love of Christ in giving himself as an offering and sacrifice for us. For no aroma is sweeter to the Father than this. When we walk in this love, we too are a sweet aroma to him. Yep. Prayers are as incense. The, the, the obedient walk of the believer is, is sweet. Incense, yeah. this, so here you've got this worshiper who, of his own free will, brings an animal 
and uh, he puts his hands on it and he it's a sacrifice. He wants to draw close to God. It's part of his worship. His heart is what is, is, is pleasing um, unto the Lord. Uh, verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, sheep or goats. Okay? Now, we have this idea in, in uh, Matthew 25 as a separation of sheep and goats. But most of the offerings that we're going to find in Leviticus could be either or, okay? Because it's not to do with believer, non-believers. It's a mixed flocks, but it's a flock. But it has to be without a blemish. There is, when you're giving something to the Lord, it can't be second rate. And uh, that intention has to try and come through into our worship today. Many times we often, unfortunately, give to the Lord really only our second best. And, uh, and that could be anything. I'll volunteer on the weekends because I've got nothing else to do is, is not an exact form of, of a, perhaps an unblemished offering. You kill it on the north side of the altar. So, uh, again, the north becomes a place of redemption. It becomes a, pl- a part of your worship form. It becomes a piece of expectation. Uh, the north becomes synonymous with a, a wide variety of things that's picked up by the Psalms and the prophets, and the life of both Jesus, who comes from the north, and Paul. After Paul has his Damascus Road experience, he deliberately goes north, because the north was a place where they would see a great light. Okay, uh, the Butterfields. Kind of twofold question. The first question is uh, a slight digression back to the idea of the sweet aroma. Why did they put incense on the altar? Uh, you know, the incense altar and burn that. And yep. uh, so, uh, thirdly, on the north, doesn't it speak of Mount Hermon in the far north, the, the mountain of God? The mountain of God being in the far north, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to have to look that one up. Uh, we'll come back to that next time. But, but basically, it's Psalm 48 is what they're referring to. Yeah. Psalm 48? However, it, doesn't, it doesn't say far north. What does it, it say, brother? That it says Mount Zion is on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Uh-huh. Yep, that's right. Because where David, the city of David was, Zion was actually to the north of him. Okay. Well, I would argue that the city of the great king, here David, the city of David, is not necessarily great because of David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah. But what was the name of the city of David long before? David. Zion. It was called Shalem. It was called Shalem, Salem. Okay. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He is the king of Salem and the priest of the God Most High. Everybody, all the religions agree that the Kidron Valley, the Yehoshaphat Valley, is going to be the King Shavay, the King's Valley, where Abraham meets Melchizedek. And on the side of the north of that little strip of land, There happens to be a mountain where we believe God put his house. And if you own a mountain, most people put a house at the top of the mountain, and that would be Mount Zion. I can argue it all day long. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I've seen you do it. The Hebrew word Siphon um, in the second and third readings may mean far north, hidden north, or upside down north. But Siphon means north. And on the side of the north, of that little tiny strip of land, there's a mountain. And that's where God says his holy mountain is, Mount Zion. There you go. That's yep. my argument. 
I had something to say a little bit uh, to, to the, to, before you go on to the, about the smell. And uh, I was just remembering this. Um, Noah, he, he offered, uh, he offered a Corban, a Corbanot here. And, and we, it was mentioned earlier, but then I was looking here, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and clean bird, blah, blah, blah. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. So it's interesting that correlation between his korbanot and the pleasing aroma and then God refraining from doing the evil again. It's incredible, isn't it? A human has an influence on the Lord. Now that is an incredible statement to say, very profound. You know, we are in a relationship with God. God has a relationship with us. There's things we can do, there's things we can bring in the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever want to do such a thing? But as humans, we have the ability, unfortunately, to do so. May it never be something we do. All right, so we have an unblemished animal. We offer it on the north. The north becomes a side, a place of redemption. There's an altar. These are special pieces of furniture still to this day in our churches. Uh, the priests uh, continue to do their little thing, and they use blood, putting it on the sides of the altar. And, uh, and then there's this description of how you burn everything up. And, again, it's pleasing. There's a, there's a, somehow there is the sense of smell. It is attached to God. And then another if, if the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, okay, we're now going down in, um, in value. So somebody comes because they cannot afford. Most people cannot afford a cow. That is not going to happen. And even if you could afford a cow, you did not do this regularly, you would quickly run through your flock. So this form of worship is not something you are doing all the time. It is not, though, something that you went through life and you uh, did something bad and you thought, oh, my gosh, I've done something bad. I better run to the temple, make a sacrifice, because just in case I die, I will go to hell, which is unfortunately the way some denominations view our lives now. But didn't Job do that in a sense? He offered a lot of sacrifices for his kids, yeah. And he's an interest, very interesting book because, A, Job's not Jewish and he's not in the land of Israel. So how does he know how to do all this stuff? It's, it's an incredible book. Um, Mystical book. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's, and one of the things I really like about studying Tanhuma, which I do uh, regularly, is um, every time you come to an uh, interesting midrash, they always quote from Eob, always quote from Job. It's as though they go, we, this is a fantastic book. It can, it, we can, un, it, we can, it can unlock every, every other verse of the Bible. You scratch it and you go, how, how can you guys possibly come up with this stuff? But, but they do. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting book, Vida. Um, uh, who is this guy? How does he know to do this? Um, and, he's, and he's offering sacrifices on behalf of his kids. The kids themselves aren't doing it, which is another interesting, interesting form of worship. The, uh, so anyway, here we have this, this idea of birds. Okay? Remember, fish are never included in, 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 in sacrifices. We've got these, these poor guys. And, um, and birds are a bit more plentiful. Uh, turtle doves, pigeons. And then there's a particular way you're supposed to kill them and, the, and where you're supposed to put the blood. 
and then you just dis- destroy the animal uh, in a place of ashes, which is to the east. Uh, again, we're not 100% sure why the east is the, is the direction. Any ideas why, do you think? What in the Bible becomes synonymous with the east? What happens in the east? Well, you, they, Adam and Eve, they go to the east. Abraham, to the goes, east. Abraham comes from the east to the west. The temple, right. the door, the temple of the, you know, the door to the temple and all synagogues are from east to west. The and Magi come from the east. Magi come from the east. Thank you very much. Who else? Somebody very the, powerful comes from the east. One of the rabbis that used to work with us at CFI said that when it talks, when it, the Bible talks about people going to the east, it means that they're going away from God. Right. Yeah, that's, that's one thing. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that was the direction that Adam and Eve ran away. And Abraham came back from the east to restore, in a sense, rectify what was lost. Right. Uh, anytime you come back from um, uh, Duluth, okay, in Bavel, okay, it's the east. Mm-hmm. They were Who taken else? to the east. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 63. <laughs> Somebody comes from Edom. Oh yes, Yeshua yes. with his okay. with his with his yeah the the robe dressed in. So so on one hand we also have north. We have redemption coming from the north. We have the mm-hmm. Psalms talk about the north. We have Isaiah and the prophets talk about the north. Jesus comes from the north. Uh, Paul goes right. the north. But also at the same time, there's something to do with the east. Mm-hmm. Comes okay, with Basra, Adam and Eve run run east. Okay, people come. Uh, the Magi come from the east. People return from captivity into the east, but uh, as well as everywhere else. But um, and there's also didn't, this, didn't the glory of God um, when it left the temple go out through the east? Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and isn't there a tradition? Isn't there also a tradition that the Messiah will enter, you know, from the east? Yes, this is Isaiah 63, the, the yeah. sort of powerful yeah. figure that comes uh, from the yeah. east. Okay. Yeah. Got a hand raised, Janet? It's not about the east. I'm just saying this. there's no um, instruction here about the male or without the defect that you get for the, um, the, the previous offerings, So, um, which seems to be very important. To bring a you know a, a sheep or a, others yeah, that are that's not a, that's a good observation, um, Janet. I actually hadn't noticed that before. Uh, now, isn't that interesting? Once you get down into the poor of the offerings, the idea of a blemished bird isn't there. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Offered from a different side of the altar, and uh, that's very interesting. I have to make a note of that and 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 sort of dwell on that for a bit. But there is also a redemption that comes very powerful one, Isaiah 63, from the east. Okay, uh, comment from the Butterfields. After this, we're going to start wrapping it up, guys. I think I read this somewhere, is that um, typology, the the north typically represents, in a sense, a redemption, and the east can, in many cases, represent judgment. Okay, where where did you hear that one from? Um, tradition I, I from? I can't remember. It was some Jewish um, typology that I was looking up. You know, like you get the numbers; they mean certain things in the Jewish mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. traditions. And I and I read this somewhere that the north had redemption and the east was judgment. In a okay, sense. that's I, interesting. I'll, I'll try I'll, and find it. Okay, that would be good if you can. I'm going to make a note of it and and try and look it up for as well. Find it. Okay, north is a place of redemption and east. 
was a place of uh, judgment, being those two things mentioned. It's the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, the uh, Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the Valley of Judgment. Okay. It's to the east of the temple. Ah, okay. Thank you. Uh, the stone Stephen. Yes. Yes, they did. All right, guys. Um, thank you very much. There's a lot there that we put in. Let's remember that this is all to do with the calling. These, these uh, offerings involve the worshiper on an intimate level. They, there's lots of different details and processes, and people can get lost in them, but there's still something within this that is pleasing and delightful to the Lord, which is the obedient heart of the worshiper. Um, there's a particular group of people that perform these rituals. So at the same time as we do believe in the priesthood of all believers, there's still this role that some parts of our community function, uh, be those our shepherds or uh, leaders. There is uh, this idea that these are very expensive sacrifices. This is not being done regularly. And the actual sacrifice itself, without repentance, there's absolutely no value. And what do you do if you don't have a sacrifice anyway? Because you can't afford it. And, uh, and this, this, this very interesting idea that once you get down to the poor sacrifices, the idea of a blemish disappears, which is also very interesting. So think on those things as we get ready to celebrate Sabbath. Uh, brothers and sisters, praise the Lord that the Messiah has come and uh, brought his redemption. May we all remember the joy of our salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King